And so see if you can follow this breath. We call it this full three-part breath. At the top of your next inhale, just pause for a moment with the breath. Hold the breath for a moment. Without a struggle, just let it, the energy and the breath build inside you. And as you exhale, let the breath fully fall out. You can even draw the abdomen back a little bit and squeeze it out. Pause for a few counts. And then take a full breath in and out. And do it like that one more time as you breathe in to your full capacity at the top of the breath. Sustain the breath for just a few counts. You can just count to two, one ohm, two ohm. And then as you exhale, empty the chest, the ribs, the belly, squeeze it out. And hold it out, two counts. And then again, let your breath turn back to its natural rhythm. And notice, notice if the breath feels long or short, if it's changed. And notice the quality of the mind as you sit here with this breath. here with you today. As you welcome everything and arrive. And just to bring the body along with the breath, as you inhale, gently open the eyes, interlace your fingers, and stretch your arms overhead. Mm. And as you exhale, gently round your back and press your hands away. And just with that big full breath that you've been using, inhale, lengthen, lift the heart up. Mm. And as you exhale, gently round it. And one more time. And again, as you exhale, just gently round and pause there for a moment. Let your spine round, breathe into the back body. Little gentle hands, imagine holding your hands so you can let go a little bit more. And as you next inhale, roll forward on the sitting bones, lengthen the spine up. And as you exhale, release the hands down, bridge your head back to the center again and pause and feel. Just feel what's happening now in this body and mind and heart. And meet yourself with that unconditional friendliness and kindness.
So we can just sit for a minute and look at each other. It's nice to start by finding yourself in a body sitting here, isn't it? Or at least it was nice for me. Did you enjoy that? How can they say no, it was terrible? (laughs) They can't do that. So sit back a minute, Brahm, because maybe in the the beginning part of when we sit quietly, you'll do that again and lead us into sitting quietly. So I wonder if somebody's here today who never came before. This would be, oh, there you are. Why don't you tell everybody your name? Marty Stein. Marty came with my friend George from uh, uh, Santa Rosa. My friend George Gittleman is uh, the rabbi of Congregation Shomrei Torah in Santa Rosa and comes from time to time and comes on retreat here from time to time. And I teach at Shomrei Torah from time to time. The, the message is the same no matter where you are. The message is always, how are we going to love each other? You know, the uh, some, somebody was explaining to me some amazing thing that we could now do, that I can do with my phone, that I didn't know before that I could do. And I thought, look at this. Somebody figured out how you can do this on a phone that isn't plugged in somewhere, that isn't attached to somewhere. It's a miracle that he has this piece of plastic and I can go ding, ding, ding and do any number of things. It's like having the Library of Congress in your hand. Only, so people have figured out amazing things and they didn't figure out how to not get in trouble with each other. And they didn't figure out how not to fight. And they didn't figure out how to stop having trouble with each other. They didn't figure out that we make things worse. It's bad enough to be in a life because things happen to you in a life. I love that new definition that I've been using for the first noble truth, which we used to say in a traditional way about life as suffering. Life comes with pain and discomfort and also joy and delight and awe. comes with all those things. And the business that we have is to be able to negotiate the path between all of those. Wow, this is terrific, and oh, I don't want this to happen. With enough balance so that we keep saying, what should I do now that doesn't create suffering? That's really the whole of practice. Once my teacher, Joseph Goldstein, said to me in response to I asked him some question, should I do this or that? I liked the way my practice was just going and I was really quite, I felt present. And um, I remember the question I asked him was, I see there's a sign up on the bulletin board that says tomorrow is Oxfam Day. So if you want to contribute money to support hunger in the world, uh you can forego eating tomorrow and the center will donate to Oxfam X amount of money for every person here who fasts for a day. We'll give them that amount of money. So I really wanted to sign my name on that. and uh, But I thought, you know, I've been really eating just modest amounts when they serve it, and I drink my cup of coffee at this time and this time and this time, and I'm managing to stay alert in a consistent way. I wouldn't want to mess up my meditation. On the other hand, I'm very drawn to do this, 
and I hope that I was very drawn to do this because it seemed like the right thing to do. I also wondered if I was drawn to do that because everybody would then be able to see who was doing it and who wasn't doing it because you had to sign up your name. So maybe there was a certain amount of ego involved in doing it. I think there's ego involved in everything, as a matter of fact, so that doesn't matter. So I asked him, I said, you know, this and this and this and this. What should I do? And he said, do whatever you need to do to stay balanced. Which I subsequently, and up to now, think is probably the most important uh, instruction you can ever give anybody. You know, What should I do? Do whatever you need to do to stay balanced. If the mind is balanced and it's not seduced by I need this, or frightened by I don't know what's going on, or angry because I don't want this, I have to get rid of it. If it's not, if it's balanced and it's not seduced or bewildered or bothered, then you can probably figure out what to do that's not going to cause suffering to other people. Probably we wouldn't because we cause suffering for other people. We cause suffering for ourselves as well. We'd probably be able to figure that out. So I think it's a very good instruction. But we give all these tons of instructions. I want to talk about instructions a lot today and what we're really, really doing here. But anyway, thank you for coming. I'm glad you came. Who else has never been here before? I, yeah. If this is the first time you're seeing this hall? It's amazing. I have a friend who says, you know, you don't have to teach there. I might just come there and sit in the hall for a while. I would feel better from that. You know, you see the seasons are changing and the deer walk by and the turkeys come by. and You know, it's, um, it's very good for the mind to relax. What's your name? Peter. Peter, welcome. Anybody else we haven't said hello to yet? There you are. Anne, Anne. Where do you live, Anne? Oh, good. So you didn't have to come down huge amounts. Good. Thank you for coming. At this time, every week, I say Ace isn't here, and so we have to do... But Ace is here, so Ace can say it himself. Talk to them for a minute. (laughs) (laughs) not so not so many last week there was about a hundred people but it's it's the weather I think it's nice I like this it's less intense Give them enough time to say hello. 
What do you think? Another minute. This is nice. This is part of it's part of the learning. Yeah, calm down and move. It's really true. When he isn't here, I always say Ace isn't here. Remember when he's here? He makes a pre- he makes a present. Ever since we've started doing that, I really, I really appreciate it. <laughs> they do. Ever since we started doing that, I really appreciate that. A. When we when we talk to each other, we suddenly realize that it's not just the body that's sitting there. It's a, a person with a name, with a story, with a whatever. And I really think that. What we are meant, called upon to do in this particular lineage and in every, in every viable religious lineage is learn that people are fundamentally all struggling with the same stuff. They're all people. Um, I'll tell you a story later on after we've sat quietly for a while about a soap opera that... Uh, uh, a, 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 um, what do you call it? It turned out to be like a, a series that some friends of mine were watching in, on the East Coast, and they said, you ought to watch this series. It lasted two years, and it's got 12 episodes on each year, but you could watch now because it's all available on Netflix. I'll tell you more about it later. But we started, watched the whole 24 episodes in about 10 days. We had totally glued to it. And as I was watching, it's a story about family over over weeks and months and things and what happens. And I realized it's just like Dallas, except Dallas is rich Texans, and these are poor people in B'nai Brak, which is the ultra Hasidic community in Jerusalem. Did you see Shtisel, George? Yeah, we're watching it now. It's completely compelling. You forget that they're not real people. Seymour says to me afterwards, do you think he's going to really marry her? I said, sweetheart, <laughs> it's a movie. <laughs> but it's completely compelling. Because what interests us, yeah. Shtisel, S-H-T-I-S-E-L. It's in Hebrew and Yiddish with English subtitles. And I, th- I think uh, that it's compelling because it's another family. Dallas is one family, and Shtisel is another family, and Roots is another family, but another family with perils and pleasures and and concerns. And my son is not doing this the way I wanted him to, and my daughter is not doing that which I wanted him to do, her to do. And my mother is giving me troubles because she's old, and my child is giving me troubles because it's not growing up fast enough. And it's sort of universal problems. And I saw a thing the. Um, 
in the most recent opera magazine, which I was reading this morning, so an opera singer saying, opera is not about plot, opera is about dilemma. And I thought that's really very good, because all the operas are the same. People meet each other, they fall in love, they fall out of love, they have various problems. But the stories of the operas are, are quite ordinary and banal. And they wouldn't be stories unless what's going on with them was a problem. The dilemma is always, what should I do now? Should I do what I want to do? Or should I do what I think is the right thing to do? Uh, one of these is, do I have to... Can you? Email it to me, and my phone is in my pocket of my jacket, which is hanging outside. <laughs> you know, it's a miracle. We can do that. <laughs> Tanya Shear, who said last week, I'll be there next Wednesday and I'll bring my copy of Pierre, unless somebody here happens to have a copy of Pierre in their pocket. I'll bring the Maury Sendak Pierre, phoned in this morning, she couldn't come. So uh, it was going to get printed out so I could read it to you. It's very short. But somehow the printer isn't working. So what she'll do is she'll send it to me on my phone uh, by an email, which I will read on my phone, to you in about 10 minutes. But it's magic. But we cannot figure out how to end the, the enormous dilemmas that are ending the planet. We can do all of this stuff. Uh, here is what I was in the middle of the sentence and I stopped because it's good. I'll tell you this and then we're going to sit. Talking about a particular opera that I have never seen, it's, it's fairly rare. And it's called La, La Clemenza de Tito. It means the mercy, the compassion of Tito. The level headed Roman Empire, Tito, is faced with an impossible decision. Should he put to death the friend who tried to assassinate him, or should he break with barbaric traditions and pardon his friends, inspiring his people to follow his example of reason, compassion, and forgiveness? This is the pull between the old and the now enlightened world that Tito envisions. That's it for everybody. Should I get over it on the, on, and make a... Make a uh, be an example of that people can overcome it. They can say, Let's, we used to be terrible for each other, but we could be friends. Yeah, I mean, we don't have to give in to the other people's stuff, but I don't have to go ahead and then I kill you and then you kill back. There's a, um, there's a, there's a part in um, Huckleberry Finn, I remember exactly where, where someone says, what's a... What's a um, uh, a feud. I think it's a feud, yeah. Because the two families were having feuds with each other. So what's a feud, Hug? Huck? He said, I don't know exactly, but I think it's once upon a time somebody did a bad thing to somebody in your family and then your family did a bad thing back to them and then their family down the road did a bad thing back to you and your family did a bad thing back to them and then back, back to them, and then back to them. He says, that's a feud. And he said, forgets to be a feud when nobody even remembers what the original thing was that they started over. But they just remember that they're feuding with each other. 
You think to yourself, what if everybody said, everybody had amnesia? They don't have that. Say, whoops, I used to have that feud, but it's gone. So we'll see about um, caring. That's what I really want to talk about today. And I, I really have the thesis. I've been thinking about it so much this last week in connection with so many things that we could get over the impulsive reaction and really say, you know what, for the good of all, let's do it this way. Um, And in order for people to be able to do that, they'd have to give up their stories. And to give up the stories, the mind would have to be comfortable. And also determined to give up the stories at the same time because they're so... um, much pernicious, I guess. The story wants to get told, hey, here comes so-and-so that you don't like. That was a long time ago, you know, I thought it over. Nah, remember what he said? He said this and this. No, no, let's, we were on the same board, let's try to get, man, I remember how bad you felt. There's something in the mind that just, they're not our friend, they're not our friend. How could we get over that? So I think that the, the, um, the meditation to start with this morning is how can we befriend ourselves? And I'm going to ask Brahmani to spend the next three or four minutes bringing attention into the body in a friendly way and then ending with a breath meditation which she'll say about may I meet this moment fully, may I meet it as a friend. And then we'll sit quietly together. And then you can be with Ace if you want, or you can stay up here with me if you want. It's nice to have company, whichever way you want. And then we'll sit for 20 minutes, 25, something like that. 20, probably. Go. Go. Thanks, so I think that is the whole like of the practice, really. May I meet this moment fully? May I meet it as a friend? It speaks of the wisdom of seeing what's so and the kindness of meeting ourselves with compassion and meeting others. May I meet this moment fully? May I meet it as a friend? So if I could just practice that, you know, if we could all practice that, it would be a better world. So right now, can we meet this moment in our bodies? Can I meet myself fully? So where you're sitting, just scoot forward for just a little bit. And then when we sit in meditation, you can come back a little bit. But this way you can get grounded and long and really be held by your inner core. And like if you can, just imagine a clear column in the center of you, like an invisible spine. Just take a few breaths along that invisible spine that connects you to the earth, connects you to the heavens. And when you see and feel into that, you can then feel into your body all around it and scan for a moment down from the crown and notice any places that are holding tension. Take a breath right there and relax what you can. Just meeting this moment, breathing in. I'm aware of breathing in. I'm aware of tension. As I breathe out, I relax what I can. Down through the muscles of your face. The shoulders. So many ways we hold on without thinking. 
And the breath is just easy and flowing. Just scan down and through your whole being. Meet what's here. Relax what you can. I think just through that intention, relax what you can. Things let go a little bit. And now that you've landed a little bit gently, let the eyes open and lengthen the spine. Take your left hand on the outside of your right leg. I'm just going to mirror you, so I'm going to go, I'm going the opposite, I'm going the same way you are. And take your right hand behind you on your chair or the back of the chair. And then as you inhale, lengthen up through the spine. And as you exhale, just twist a little bit from the belly to the right. And then you'll notice as you inhale, the body unwinds a little bit. And as you exhale, you can twist the belly and the ribs. And then just breath by breath, as you inhale, the body naturally unwinds and lengthens. And as you exhale, it moves the belly, the ribs, and the chest. And then the head comes last, and the eyes. And just take a few breaths there. And you can let the eyes soften or close, and you feel how the breath moves the body. It is a mover. And then you're in partnership. The inhale, it fills and unwinds a little. And as you exhale, you can twist into it. Take one or two more breaths here. See where this body wants to go without pushing or forcing. Just gently encouraging, wringing out any tensions. And then as you next inhale, let the back arm lift a little and unwind back to the center. And just pause in the center for a moment to feel what's happening. And the body has a way of bringing itself back to balance. And Sil just spoke of that. Do what you need to keep yourself in balance. And so we've twisted to the right. Now take your right hand on the outside of your left leg, your left hand behind you. And as you inhale, you lengthen. And as you exhale, just begin from the belly, your twist. And then just breath by breath, the inhale lengthens and unwinds, and then the belly and the ribs twist a little bit. And then breath by breath, it's like climbing a spiral staircase, right? May I meet this moment fully as a friend, not pushing or forcing the upper body and then the head. And then once you've found that twist, a few breaths. And you'll feel how the breath moves you and you're move with it. You're in partnership with it. And then the last breath, just wring it out a little bit. And to release, lift the back arm a little. Unwind back to the center. Stay present for the whole unwinding. And then scoot yourself back to sit. And notice how you feel sitting here now. Feet on the earth. Spine elegantly long but comfortable. And remind yourself, as you inhale, may I meet this moment fully. 
And as you exhale, may I meet it as a friend. It's a gentle, it's like a mantra that trains the mind to wisdom and kindness. May I meet this moment fully. May I meet it as a friend. Whatsoever arises in the body or the mind, just meet it with a spaciousness, a kindness. Allowing the natural breath that rises and falls. And the phrases, they both call us back to this moment with space for things to be.
in some lineages meditation practice is done with eyes open and I thought maybe you'd like because today it's so extraordinary to see the intensity of the rain to just open your eyes for the last couple of minutes and just watch it from wherever you are there's a window ahead of you somewhere It's our habit here, and it makes so much sense to me to use the last moments of our sitting together to mention aloud into the space people that we're thinking about with particular intention. I think it most naturally seems appropriate because when I feel at ease and my body feels at ease and my mind is relaxed and not preoccupied with myself, I tend to think about more about other people and people I know and people who are in an awesome and wonderful place, special in their lives, and people who are having some difficulty. Just to say their name and their situation so it's shared in the air in our communal space. I'm thinking about my friend Lynn who spent six hours at the hospital yesterday when the first of six Um, chemotherapy days at um, three week intervals that the doctors hope will treat her um, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and how three weeks ago she didn't know she had this and now she does how much I'm thinking about her and hoping that she's well. I'm also thinking about the people in uh, 
Sonoma County who they mentioned today, there are going to be mudslides and difficulties with overflow rivers and people everywhere with difficulties in this untimely weather all over the country, probably all over the world. Who are you thinking about this morning? Cousin Varda, who is on uh, dialysis and uh, having a really tough time with it, and going to give it a month to see if she can deal with it or not. So I'm hopeful that she will get more comfortable. Uh, my dad, who recently was diagnosed with early um, bone cancer. start his treatments in the next couple of weeks and they say the chance of recovery is high. Thinking about my 13-month-old granddaughter who has just begun walking and and when I see her, she's just so excited about every moment. It really can lift a heart. Thinking about my friend Susan, who's having a knee replacement today, and wish her a speedy recovery. sister who's struggling with addiction, wishing her well.
I'm thinking about my grandson, Eric, who's getting married next Tuesday night. And uh, what started as a small, intimate wedding with close family and nearest friends has grown. And uh, his uh, Swedish grandparents arrived from Sweden yesterday. And quite amazingly, our whole family is coming from far and near. And his fiancée, Rachel's family, is coming from far and near. And we are quite suddenly having this surprisingly wonderful event on the middle of the week. For everyone that we've mentioned out loud with a name and everybody that we didn't mention out loud with a name and we just thought about and everybody who's taking care of them or celebrating with them and everyone in every connection everywhere. May everyone realize that companioning is what keeps us all really grateful not feeling alone. (coughs) May all beings everywhere take good care of each other. I don't say it every week, but I think it every week, where I think, you know, we're here for two hours, and I actually think that that five minutes where we say out loud what's on our minds and hearts is like maybe the most potent piece of being here for me. It's like everybody teaches each other. It's like if we were to say, let's now have a five-minute discussion of life comes with pain and disappointment and discomfort and awe and wonder and delight. Let's just really talk about it. And we we do that. We say the names of this one that we're worrying about and this one that we're celebrating about. And I'm pretty sure that it's your experience as it is with mine. That when I hear about somebody's story, if I know them or if I don't know them, I feel awe, really, about them. And I'm sure that you do. I see everybody, yeah, yeah, no, I don't know them. But sometimes I know them a little bit because uh, when Brahmani says the granddaughter, I know that granddaughter. 
uh, and I remember when she was born, but when somebody else says, my brother or my sister or my child, they don't know them. I have a child, I have, I have grandchildren. You know, there's a way that I think that, that it, it confirms for me what I fundamentally believe about human beings is that we're caring animals. We're, we have that, um, that ability to, for compassion built in. We don't have to go to compassion school. That uh, children, in, they, they've long done studies and reports on nursery school, preschools, really. And if somebody falls down or cries in a three-year-old preschool, everybody else looks around and locates you know, the source of the difficulty. And often it happens that people bring a, a toy over to the affected child or do something for it. I think it's wired into us that we take care of people. I think we, we finished, I, I don't know, I think it was last week that we were recalling the images of a century ago where there was no, there was no way for young women to deal with uh, unwanted pregnancies and children. And there were images of babies left on doorsteps. And we talked about the, the, uh, the shared feeling that we had uh, in any of us and that I assume that most people have. If you open your door and you find a baby in a basket with a note, please take care of me, and it's crying or not even crying, you don't stop to say, wait a minute, it's the wrong gender, it's the wrong color, it's the wrong this, it's the wrong ethnicity. You pick it up and you take care of it. I was, I was, was it last week that we ended at that point? Because somebody said, you have to be so careful these days. I would pick it up, but I would call the police right away. You know, but we're so concerned about what are the legalities of this. But everybody said we'd pick it up. I think that's in us. If someone's in distress, if we are not personally in distress at that moment, we pick them up. And I think that's how it works, that if we... If I, when I am able to be reasonably relaxed and balanced in my own mind, then I am open to really feeling something for people that I don't know. And it's a relief, because in the moment of feeling for people I know or don't know, I am relieved of thinking all my stories about myself. I am relieved of self-preoccupation, how this worry, what if this, what if that. that those go all away in moments of connection. I, and I, yeah, I know that you know that. When you're doing something for somebody else, it picks you up. I, I, I sometimes tease about that now it's... Um, uh, it's uh, sort of in vogue when someone says, uh, thank you very much for whatever, for bagging my, my, my groceries or for carrying them out of the car. You say, thank you very much. And they say, no problem. I want to say, don't say that because that negates my thank you very much, you know. Then there wasn't a problem, then there wasn't anything for that. What a fool I am to thank you. If I said thank you very much and they said it was a pleasure, uh, um, my pleasure to help you. Then we have we have really touched each other in that moment. And I want to teach people to touch each other and look at them. 
because it feels better for everybody involved. So after that whole, I'm going to do it on my email. I'm not going to do it on my on my phone. This is Pierre by Maurice Sendak. Who knows this Pierre? Okay. The pic the, the pictures are great. It's got three chapters. Um, Okay, prologue. There once was a boy named Pierre who only would say, I don't care. Read his story, my friend, for you'll find at the end that a suitable moral lies there. Chapter one. One day his mother said when Pierre climbed out of bed, good morning, darling boy, you are my only joy. Pierre said, I don't care. What would you like to eat? I don't care. Some lovely cream of wheat? I don't care. Don't sit backwards on your chair. I don't care. Or pour syrup on your hair. I don't care. You're acting like a clown. I don't care. And we have to go to town. I don't care. Don't you want to come, my dear? I don't care. Would you rather stay right here? I don't care. So his mother left him there. Chapter 2. His father said, Get off your head. A little picture of him standing on the head. His father said, get off your head or I will march you up to bed. Pierre said, I don't care. I would think that you could see. I don't care. Your head is where your feet should be. I don't care. If you keep standing upside down, I don't care. We'll never get to go to town. I don't care. If only you would say, I care. I don't care. I'd let you fold the folding chair. I don't care. So his parents left him there. They didn't take him anywhere. (laughs) Chapter 3. Now as night began to fall, a hungry lion paid a call. He looked Pierre right in the eye and asked him if he'd like to die. Pierre said, I don't care. I can eat you, don't you see? I don't care. And you will be inside of me. I don't care. And then you will never have to bother. I don't care with a mother or a father. I don't care. Is that all you have to say? I don't care. Then I'll eat you, if I may. I don't care. So the lion ate Pierre. Chapter 4. Arriving home at six o'clock, his parents had a dreadful shock. They found the lion sick in bed and cried, Pierre is surely dead. They pulled the lion by the hair. They hit him with the folding chair. His mother asked, where is Pierre? The lion answered, I don't care. (laughs) His father said, Pierre's in there. They rushed the lion into town. The doctor shook him up and down. And when the lion gave a roar, Pierre fell out upon the floor. He rubbed his eyes and scratched his head and laughed because he wasn't dead. His mother cried and held him tight. His father said, are you all right? Pierre said, I am feeling fine. Please take me home. It's half past nine. The lion said, if you would care to climb on me, I'll take you there. Then everyone looked at Pierre who shouted, yes, indeed, I care. The lion took them home to rest and stayed on as a weekend guest. The moral of Pierre is care. So, I, and Maurice Endak wrote that probably 30 years or 40, I don't know, a long time ago. I talked to a friend of mine yesterday who told me that she had been invited to be a speaker. She's in my same line of work. She's invited to be a speaker at Kent State at a, a compassion conference that is organized by a professor there 
who is the chairman of the Department of Compassion and Caring. I think, ah, that is fantastic. Anybody here went to school where they had a Department of Compassion and Caring? <laughs> uh, I mean, really, is that, that, that's really good. I like, I actually, I was going to, this morning I was going to look it up and look in the Kent State catalog and see what courses they gave. But just to have that, that recognition that if the world is going to save itself, it has to care, really. And in the moment that we care, the mo- it's not only nice because we're doing something for somebody else, but it's really redemptive. You can't be self-preoccupied. It's, it's really the, uh, the, the, the um, cure of suffering. It's the antidote to suffering is you care about somebody else. Actually, if you cared about yourself, it would also be okay. It's different from caring about yourself is different from self-preoccupation in the way that uh, why did I get this? It's not fair. I shouldn't have this happening to me. Uh, it, uh, you know, I took good care of myself. I took all those vitamins. Why would I have this sickness now? Why is my son doing this? Why is my daughter doing this? It isn't what I wanted. All of that is editorializing in a way that's making the fundamental pain of the situation worse. Like it's my fault. Whereas real compassion for yourself would be, oh dear, look at me. I'm really in a lot of pain about what's going on with my family. It isn't what I wanted, but it's what I got. And how am I going to make that work? Where was that lovely line from... The, the compassion of Tito. Should I put to death a friend who tried to assassinate me? Or should I break with tradition and pardon him with compassion and forgiveness? I say, whoa, what a good idea that is. Obviously, yeah, I mean, we should stop him from trying to assassinate other people or me, but maybe we could do it another way, talk it over. That really is a fundamental thing. How are we going to uh, the, I, the word there was barbaric. We're going to break with barbaric tradition. It's barbaric to hit back. Could we not hit back? Which requires a certain amount of self-control. I've been thinking so much in recent weeks about the fact that when I began to study Dharma 40 years ago, it really the the the... the Understanding that I got from my teachers, understandably because they studied with um, monks in monasteries in Asia. And so if they studied 50 years ago and the monks had studied 80 years ago, this is practically, it is not practically, it is another era in understanding. And somehow the message that I got through my teachers which isn't entirely not right, was that liberating insight would come through very deep and uh, concentrated states and that the emphasis it would be on going to more and more retreats, retreat practice and altered states. And what I have seen and thought about over all these years, and most particularly now, 
with the world and having such a difficult time is that what was always central to the Buddha's teaching but not central through the teachings that I got that were really teachings for monastics was that compassion developed and changed happened and the habits of the heart changed seriously when you looked around and looked at how, around how people are suffering and really got it. You know, we look around all the time. We see people suffering all the time in different ways. We see it in the newspaper. We see it in our families. But the fundamental story about disappointment and discomfort and um, pain is ubiquitous in the world. What The part that we have something to do with, the part where we can really at least not make it worse, is to be able to see that our role is to keep, is to, is to transform contention with the world. This can't be happening. To compassion for the world. It is happening. And we're doing it to each other all the time. Someone asked, is that person here today? Someone asked me, just as we left last week, what's the middle way? Oh, I was showing my book, which I've been studying, called The Fundamental Wisdom of the Middle Way, which is the teachings of a teacher named the Garjana that I didn't know a lot about. And I've been studying this with my friend, Tony Bernhardt, and enjoying it a lot. Uh, Nagarjuna lived about 500 years after the Buddha. And I just mentioned that last week, and that person said to me, what's the middle way? Are you, where is that person that asked that? Okay. I said, I'll talk about it next week. So anyway, it's in the airwaves. Um, I think the middle way is... Uh, the, the, uh, an overall understanding of not asceticism and not just um, a plof- profligate living. That some, some way where in between an ascetic life, um, the ascetic life where you give up lots of things and you practice renunciation as a way of taming the mind, uh, in between that, which really um, doesn't give the body strength, and I think it doesn't really, in a monastic context, give people the opportunity to be with other people and learn about suffering. And in between that and profligate living, just whatever I want, that in between saying, I'll figure out in this world what I need, what's appropriate, I once had a teacher, uh, I, I went to India with my husband in 1991, I think. Many of us were going to visit a teacher named Punja, who was an Advaita teacher. And the word was out that Punja had a way of really deepening people's understanding. And uh, my friend James Barras, who teaches in Berkeley, many of you know, been with James, uh, after we were there for a couple of weeks, and James was there on that trip. And we had a, a, um, a meeting with Punjaji. He's, we could meet with him after that class that day. He had uh, satsang every day. People came in a room and he taught. And once James and I met with him, 
privately, and we said we were Buddhist teachers in the United States. And he said, um, uh, Punja said, what do you teach? So I don't remember the whole of the sentence that James said, but he said, mostly we teach about generosity. And maybe he meant generosity. I don't know what he meant. But anyway, the part that I remember is that Punja said, there's no such thing as generosity. So that just has blown our entire thing. I mean, finally we have an audience, and here we are, and we teach generosity. There's no such thing as generosity. Uh, <laughs> so, okay, thank you very much. <laughs> so, but I, what, what Punja said is, you know, Sometimes, well, he was talking about kinds of generosity. And what I came away and how I translated it is, if I go through my closet now, because it's starting to be spring, and I see that I need to put some lighter clothes and put my winter coat in the closet downstairs, uh, or I see that I haven't worn that winter coat because it's really not that cold in uh, a number of years, or once or twice... And then I decide to give it to the goodwill. Punja would say, that's not generosity, that's closet cleaning. <laughs> you know, that, that uh, if I look at it and I think, you know, that's a really nice coat. I actually wore it twice last year. And, you know, it's just in the corner of the closet. You know, it doesn't take up so much space. I can just stick it here. Maybe I'll wear it once a year. But for a long time, I had a little, uh, uh, one of those um, magnets on my refrigerator that said the sweater that's in your, clanging in your closet that you haven't worn in a year is not your sweater. It belongs to the homeless person on the corner, and you forgot to deliver it. So I have that in my mind about, you know, how many times you have to wear the coat. But when you give something because you're aware of somebody else's need, and you have no personal greed, I need that, maybe I'll need it, maybe I'll need it once a year, when you don't have any of that, then that's generosity. Oh, and he said, that's not generosity, that's just plain human action. So I, I, don't, I don't want to take sides on that, because I think that, it, that you can practice generosity. I actually think there's a whole other story, but I think everything that we do, when I decide because one of my cousins says something that I take badly because they didn't mean it badly but they often say things that are anyway and I think er cousin saying the same thing and I can think you know what it's cousin always has said blunt things in a in a kind of a clumsy way and they're not really a bad person and I really grew up with them. And we used to play a lot together. So they just said this clumsy thing. That's just their way. So I sort of give up my story. But that's a moment of generosity. Actually, to myself. I'm giving away for myself. I'm giving away that story. Now I don't have to be burdened with, hmm, I'm not going to call her. Let's see, when she calls me again, then I'll call her, maybe. That we're keeping so many scores in the mind. A friend of mine said the other day, apropos of that, uh, that um, she said, I just pretend that it's Yom Kippur every day. Uh-huh. And, uh, by which she meant, on Yom Kippur is a day that you think about who you have not forgiven or with whom you hope to clarify things and be forgiven by. She said, I don't think it makes any sense to wait till 
sometime in September or October to do that. Why not do that in your mind every day? What were you going to say, Nancy? Shout out, Nancy, or use this so that it comes out. Oh, no, you don't even have to. Just shout, because they're not recording today. Okay, all right. But I've been really working on this in the last day, so it's actually exciting to hear this. I was involved. I over... Well, I coordinated this memorial that happened last Saturday that literally hundreds of people came to. And in trying to plan it and be very inclusive in who got to speak, um, it was really tough, and including telling people they absolutely couldn't speak for more than four minutes, just because we had so many people, and it would go on forever. And I was really moved. There were three people that didn't stick with it, but the other eight people really did, and it was a beautiful ceremony. And just yesterday when I was getting in the water swimming to think about it, I just thought... The day before, I thought, I so appreciate the people that had respect for the time limit, but that wasn't quite hitting it. And then I thought about generosity. And it's a different way of giving up, but the people that actually stayed in the four minutes um, were so generous in not letting their stories be the most important stories. Mm -hmm. So they all had good stories, but they were like, you know what? We're going to let other people tell their story too. And I was just, I was actually crying when I got in the water because I was just so moved by the generosity mm-hmm. of people willing to share. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm glad. Well, could, we should really pass this around. Anybody else has a bit? Whoops. Okay, you be the passer. George, you want to say something? It's lovely to be here. Um, I wanted to amend your definition of generosity um, to include the struggle. Because I think if you, um, let's take an object, and you see it, and you go, I love this object, and you go, I love this object, and I'm going to give it to somebody, that's, you know, that's an act of generosity. Mm-hmm. Even with the, you're working with the ur, the, the lust, or whatever, however you want to describe it. Um, um, but it still feels, in the end, I think, uh, like an act of generosity. And sort of in the Jewish framework, you almost like get more credit for <laughs> overcoming the 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 lust for that object. Yeah. I just would expand it that no, way. No, no, no. I think that's wonderful. Actually, it brings to mind 10 or 15 years ago, at least, I went somewhere to teach for a weekend. Maybe even 20 years ago, because I hardly do that anymore. And I was housed for that weekend. I don't remember where it was. With, at, at someone's home in that community where I was teaching. And um, at the time, I had one of those uh, cashmere scarves that I think we sell in our bookstore. But um, it had a scarf that where the fringes were beaded, and it was a red scarf, and it had red beads on each end. It was really beautiful, and I would put it around me, and I would throw it over my shoulder, and it was very gl- glamorous. And I went there and I taught for a weekend and as I was leaving, I was putting on my scarf and about to throw over my shoulder and my hostess for the weekend said, that is a beautiful shawl. And what flashed in my mind is that my good friend Jack Cornfield and I have talked on lots of occasions. It's his practice. He will say, I remember I said to Sylvia, that uh, she was wearing a beautiful tie. I was wearing 
a, a UNICEF tie with all children, whatever. It was a good tie. And he said, I love that tie, and you took it off from you, and you gave me the tie. And he said, you know, and he was using that for a definition, like you said, and somebody said, I love your thing. So that, the woman said, oh, I love your shawl. So I said, here, I'll give it to you. So, oh, no, no, no. I said, no, really, it'll be great. I'm happy that you have it. And you know what? I do not remember who the woman was. I don't remember what I was teaching and where it was. But I remember the pleasure I had of giving her the shawl at that moment. And I have had so much pleasure in thinking about that I gave her that shawl at one point. Maybe I wouldn't do it the next time, but I did it that time. And I have it in my memory bank. And... You know, I don't, you know, I don't need another red shawl because I once had one. Now I'll have another shawl or something else. But I think that George, you're right. It's about having the maybe the awareness of not maybe I need it, but I love it. You know, I really love it, and I use it. As a matter of fact, I'm in the middle of putting it on. <laughs> but uh, to say, you know, that there's a way in which we really don't need it. That I and. Uh, well, we'll come up to I want to hear what George has to say. But Can I add what, just one other thing to that? Yeah, go ahead. Well, also, the same, same mechanism when we let go of the Ur story we have about someone. Yeah. The same, and the same relief and feeling we have when we can actually let it go. That's right. I don't have to have that old story anymore. That's done. Erase it from the... When they say in courts, the, the jury will erase that from the record. And you think, ah, oh, how can they erase? They already said, I did it, I stabbed them five times, you know, but you <laughs> but, but really, to be able to not even remember it, because I think that the thing, I think I, um, I shall not want is line two, I, I won't crave, is line two of Psalm 23. And I think it's an important thing that says, I, I don't need anything. I mean, it, I, I, I certainly want to go home and live in a house. And uh, I was touched about somebody with tarps. I hadn't thought about the numbers of people in Marin County living in homeless situations and in this rain. But uh, it's not about need, uh, you know, hoping that I still have a house. But I do have a place to live and food to eat. But there's nothing really that I need. Uh, yeah, Ace, what? I think... Sorry. Hello there. Um, <clears throat> uh, I think it just feels much better to give than to receive. I mean, that's the old, the old feeling. And I was lucky to grow up with parents that gave to other people. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I used to think, I don't deserve it. It's not about not deserving. It just feels better to really see someone else gain, get the pleasure. It feels, I, that's just how it is for me. So No, no, I think, I, I think in really putting it into, we don't think about that my parents taught me morality. Uh, but they did when they, when, they, when they exhibited generosity or when they exhibited honesty. I read this morning last night in the most recent Atlantic magazine, it said that businesses are now uh, ordering 20% over what they think they need in terms of business supplies because they have 20% loss 
of people pilfering stuff on the job. They take a few pencils, and next week they take a box of pencils, next week they take something else. The 20% override for people pilfering, and they did research with people about this, of course, obviously without telling their names, but they said, you know, at first I started, I took a few pencils, or I thought, well, you know, sometimes I print out things from work, so it doesn't matter if I take home some printing paper. So by and large, by, over time, I became used to it, and I could take bigger and bigger things and not feel morally bad. And so it brings up the, 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 uh, the thought in me. I just read this last night, and then this morning... I met Nisha, who's uh, one of the administration here, and she had just gotten back from Cambodia with all of her family. Nisha is um, Indian, but grew up and and grew up part of her childhood in India. But she and her family were on a trip in Cambodia, and uh, the tour guide, she said, at some point, she said to him, is there any question you'd like to ask me about life in the West? Because she said they enjoyed so much the sense of be- feeling safe. That sila, like morality, is such a big deal that you don't have to be on the alert all the time. Nobody will hurt you. Nobody will take your stuff. Imagine. Nobody will hurt you. Nobody will take your stuff. She said, um, the tour guide said, um, could you explain to me that when um, American tourists come, and then they come and they get a private tour like this. And so they're people who are affluent. Why is it when they go in the market and they want to buy some artifacts that people have made to take home as souvenirs, that they bargain? They don't bargain when they go to the store in the United States. They go in and they pay. Do they not admire us or do they think they heard that you could get away with paying a dollar less. And why would they want to get away with paying a dollar less? Because a person selling woven hats or rugs in the market is obviously not in the same economic situation as they. Why is that? Does that make you feel a little bad? Andrew, doesn't make you... <laughs> huh? Absolutely. Yeah. I don't no, I don't do it. I, it always seems to me very poor taste. You know, someone says this is worth this, and like if I can't, if it's more than I want to pay, you know. And There's some places where they expect you to bargain. Well, so they say, but I was thinking about that. But then I think, well, if you get complicit in that, and it's like everybody is sullied a little bit with that. And let me tell you what I was hopeful that I would definitely say this morning. Because I don't always say what I'm definitely going to say. But I, I said I wanted to talk, I thought to myself, I really want to talk about the pleasure of morality. Um, I said, I think, uh, any number of times, that if somebody had said to me 40 years ago, why didn't you take up meditation and become a kinder person? I would have said, nah, you know, I'm doing all right with that. You know, that that is not my problem. So... <laughs> I'm nervous, I'm anxious, I worry a lot, I have, you know, I can't figure out meaning or whatever, but the kindness is not my problem, it's not my thing. But then come to find out that really perfecting the the virtues of the heart, generosity and morality and restraint and um, patience and honesty 
and determination and energy and uh, goodwill and equanimity are all factors of wisdom. That's a that's a chart that I just re- recited in in uh, the Buddhist canon. They are the ten paramitas. They're the ten perfections of the heart. I think there are nine perfections of the heart, and the wisdom is the ringer. It's in the middle. And it isn't something you can't get. You can get up in the morning and say, I'm going to be very generous today. I'm going to be scrupulously honest. I'm going to really pay attention to that. I'm going to be very patient. Today I'm cultivating patience. You can't get up and say, today I'm going to be very wise. Because when you're not wise, you don't know that you're not wise. That's the problem. But it seems to me that you, if you add up all those other things, they come up. They add up to wisdom. Because they add up, and the wisdom is when you do all those things, you feel good, you feel better if you've done all that. If you if you're in some uh, in whatever situation you think of one, can you think of a situation where you become impatient about something and you do not let it on to the people around you? Think of a thing. What? So now let's tell it out. So it's not just me. I just thought of a few things. You're standing in line in the supermarket and the clerk is taking way too long, you think. (laughs) And somebody says, I'll be right back. I forgot the laundry detergent. (laughs) What else? And you you could say, "Uh," or you could just wish them well on their way to the laundry detergent. And nobody knows that you were practicing Dharma. But in the meantime... You are not inflaming your own mind. All right, so you tell. Give, we'll, we'll give you. <laughs> what did you do? No, thank you. I was standing in a drugstore, and the there were must have been ten of us standing in one in a line, and there was only one checkout. And he was chatting with this fellow about uh, everything and anything there his wife, his kid, whatever. And it was taking forever, and I had to be someplace, which is usual. And I was sitting there, and I go, hmm, okay. Is there anyone else? I said, do you have anyone else that, you know, can do the line? And he goes, no, just me. And I went, hmm, okay, hmm. And I had to get what I had. Uh, It was a prescription. And I went up there, and he was mad at me. Because I was sitting there, and I was really upset. I was about seventh in the line, you know what I'm saying? And someone said, you can go in front. I said, no, 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 that's not right. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) And when I left, I said to him, I'm so sorry, because somewhere along the line here, long line, I offended you in some way. And he looked at me, and he said, no, I was upset because I had offended you. Uh. And I said, oh, wow. You know, I totally flunked. Uh, no, no, you didn't. I think the last the last 30 seconds of what you said is you unflunked. You oh. thought you had. <laughs> then you all think that? Tell me your name again. I forgot. Anita. Anita. Yeah. I think when you came over and said, I think I offended you, that is the unflunk. And the best is that this yeah. guy says, no, no, I also... But wouldn't it be amazing if we could say all the time to people, excuse me, I think I offended you or this or that. Or to yourself when you're standing. When I, I, the other day, <laughs> but yesterday I was standing somewhere 
And in a similar situation, I don't remember where, and I was late, and it wasn't going right, and I was, and I thought to myself, hey, <laughs> I started to sing my meta resolves to myself, and I think to myself, this is so ridiculous, sweetheart, you teach this all the time. You tell thousands of people, you're supposed to start saying to yourself, may I, may I, may I feel contented, and uh, may I feel... May I feel protected and safe. May I feel contented and pleased. May my physical body support me with strength. May my life unfold smoothly with ease. May I feel protected and safe. And I start to laugh. You know, I said, hey, I am supposed to know that. But you get seduced when you're on the line. But I actually think, I really, really believe that every time I do that, I have moved the Mississippi one micromillimeter to the right or to the left or something. That change happens over time if you catch yourself and you don't indulge in that whatever it was that you were doing. What I was going to say, there were two things that I wanted to put out today. So when I'm back in a few weeks, we can start from them as jumping off points. That when you think about... If the, if the middle way is between asceticism and profligate living, which means a certain amount of restraint, what it really means, that restraint is an underused word that when you're thinking to say on the line that or tap your foot or otherwise <laughs> give a sign that you're unhappy and you don't do it, that restraint is building, used to say building character in the old days, but it is. It's building the virtues of the heart that you can be patient. If something isn't happening, it's just not happening yet. It's going to happen. Eventually the line will move. I, I, I was telling you last week, I think, about my practice in airplanes of watching the uh, little icon of the airplane. I, I like to watch Follow Your Journey. You see that little icon of the airplane going. Especially with the last four or five hours of the flight where you think, I can't sit here another minute. But you know, you don't have a chance. It's not an opportunity to get off. So you have to sit there another minute. And it's a lie that you can't sit there another minute. You can. You can sit there another year if you have to, you know. Uh, somebody called me yesterday who had just landed uh, way late because there were storms all over the place happening. So we were circling the airport for three quarters of an hour until there was a runway to land on. You can hold it together. Uh, but the body doesn't feel like that. But when we learn to do that, then you don't have to say out everything. In the, in the 1970s, I think in the 80s, there was therapy. Uh, uh, therapies were in vogue we were supposed to say everything. The idea was let it all hang out. Tell people how you actually feel about them. Uh, I used to... I don't know, this might be true. I've, my husband and I have speculated that we stayed married as long as we have because we never went to an encounter group. That we, <laughs> uh, we never told us each other. We never let... I mean... Certainly, he knows more about, as much about me as anybody else on the planet. But you don't tell every single thing. I mean, that would be a foolish thing to do. <laughs> I once said that when I started a week of teaching at a uh, retreat center that was founded in <laughs> in Gestalt therapy, and I had just as in the I, I was teaching about how to keep a personal journal as a means of 
really becoming aware of yourself. So I was a, a guest at this ongoing 12-week retreat for one week, and I introduced myself. I said, you need to have a journal, because personal journal, because you don't want to tell anybody every single thing about your life. And that was really heresy in that place. It was very not thoughtful of me to say it. If I had thought about it, I certainly wouldn't have said it, but I hadn't had a big background in Gestalt, and it was really like blasphemy in the middle of there. And I had a hard time that week because I couldn't back myself out of it because they immediately had such an opinion of me. So it was an interesting teaching week and I learned a lot about it. I want to talk about uh, the, well, for a couple of reasons, I want to talk about a piece of Buddhism that's called the Brahma Viharas. Who knows what the Brahma Viharas are? Who, for whom is it a new word? Okay. So now, those who know, those who don't know, and everybody in between. The word Brahma Vihara means a dwelling place for, um, a holy dwelling place, a sacred dwelling place. A Vihara is a dwelling place. And uh, Brahma is like celestial, um, a special dwelling place of spirit. And the th- and there's a whole teaching that says when the mind is in a state of equanimity, which is not necessarily a very altered, profound state, sometimes you're walking down the street and your mind's really easy and you feel good. You ever think about that? That you're walking down the street and think, I just feel good. Right now I feel good. Or you're walking on a mountain path or you're fishing in a river, or you're just shopping in a supermarket. Every once in a while, I think to myself, my mind feels good. It's not having a problem right now. I love that. that for that, I like the idea, no problem. The mind is not having a problem. It, it really is alert. As soon as it gets startled, it has a problem. How am I going to get this, or how am I going to get rid of this, is what its problem is all the time. Walking along, and things are good, what, the mind is in a state of balance, and the teaching is, and I, I roughly, I think I, I, this makes sense to me. There are three kinds of events that, three kinds of events that we come upon or that arise in our consciousness. Sometimes we're walking along, and we feel good and not a problem, and all of a sudden you come around a corner and a child has been knocked over by a bicycle and the paramedics are arriving, uh, on a bicycle, paramedics are arriving, and all of a sudden you think, <gasps> and you don't know the child or the people or whatever, but that your your mind is is balanced and it's available for that. Or you come around a corner and you see a homeless person looking in a terrible shape and... I can imagine that there are situations where if a person's mind is already overwrought and they come around and they see a, a, a really desperate-looking person, they might think, oh, I can't bear this. If the mind is really in a resting and balanced place. It comes around the corner and sees that and it thinks, oh, you probably felt that this morning when somebody said about, I don't think the tarps are going to work. And you feel, ah, oh, a little bit. And how many people there were around. 
that that's what the heart does when it's available. Ah, look at that. And people that you don't know, you read the headlines of uh, people at the border, people anywhere in trouble. And you feel, ah, and you don't know them, but you feel. When the mind is balanced, you'll notice actually that I pretty much interchange the words mind and heart because the the Pali word for that is really mind-heart. And uh, people have said, I'm not sure this is true, uh, that uh, uh, in, uh, in countries, in Dharma countries with different languages, people will say, I feel, or I think, and we would say, I feel, or I think, like I think here, but you think with your mind-heart, wherever that is, which isn't necessarily here. This, wherever it is, mind-heart is all over the place. Uh, if you come around the corner and you see some child is doing uh, breakdancing in an amazing way, and you think, ah, oh, look at that. You get all excited. You don't know the child, you don't know their people, you don't know anything about anything. But it's an amazing piece of art to be able to do. Or you watch the football game and you see someone um, I said we talked about the football game last week about the Super Bowl and it's not so PC to watch because of but they're such consummate athletes that it's really amazing you watch people know how to do that and catch that and do what they're doing you go wow look at that and actually in my life I don't have much to do with football nobody in my family ever wanted to be a football player but but it's it's fun to rejoice in other people's skill. And wow, look at that! A person can do that. I I do that. I have that all the time. I'm just giving you all these examples because I'm looking for things that you can. Oh yeah, if I go to the symphony, and uh, it's an it's always an amazing performance because all those people come on stage, sixty or eighty or a hundred people with instruments and somebody directing them. And I, sometimes I start to think, how many hours did each of these people put in to perfecting this skill? And how many parent hours driving them back and forth to the lessons and saying, did you practice? And how many scholarships to uh, Juilliard and how many people, junior high school teachers said you should really apply to go to the High School of Music and Art. How many circumstances had to happen for these people to be all sitting here with a musical instrument and playing together so marvelously. It's incredible, the numbers of hours. If you think about it, I thought to myself sometime this week that everything has an effect all the time. Every single thing that we do. Uh, Some things, well, it couldn't have that big of an effect, but things that we say make an effect, and sometimes they're more important than other times. Things that people do have an effect, it's a very important piece of Buddha Dharma to really think about or somehow recognize that uh, every event has far-reaching circumstances. You don't even know what the benefits or the, the complications of that could be. Many years ago when I was actually writing a book about uh, perfecting the virtues of the heart, 
I told a story about um, having gone into the restroom at a restaurant in Marin. And I was uh, washing my hands and a woman next to me that I didn't know um, took a, like a clip out of the back of her hair and shook her hair. It had been all pinned up and it all flew out in a beautiful way. And she had tremendous hair in the 80s, it must have been, or 90s, Farrah Fawcett-type hair. And I said, really quite spontaneously, wow, you have beautiful hair. And she looked at me and she said something like, well, if it makes you feel any better, I'm very unhappy. So I thought to myself, why would that... Why would that make me feel better? Did she think that I coveted her hair or that I envied her or I resented her having the hair? Anyway, I went out of there and I felt bad. I told it to my friend Martha with whom I was having dinner, my friend Martha now of blessed memory. I told Martha, and Martha got all indignant about that. That wasn't nice, she said that she said that. And... uh, then I, then I talked about it on a Wednesday morning like this. And, and people have different feelings about it. Then I talked to my friend John about it. And he said, well, so he said, I said, I feel terrible that I, I didn't check, first of all. I just said it into the air. I blurted it out. Once again, I blurted out something spontaneous and very stupid of me to blurt out. And John said, listen, he said, you don't know. He said, you don't know that, uh, first of all, that afternoon maybe her partner just broke up with her, maybe she just lost her job, maybe she just this minute broke 20 years of sobriety. You don't know about what was going on with her. And also, you don't know that three months from now she's standing in front of a mirror somewhere, not in such a gloomy moment, and combing her hair, or maybe in a gloomy moment. And she thinks to herself, wow, this old woman... In the restroom of Max's, one said, I had beautiful hair. He said, he said, it's somewhere in the universe. And you don't know when it'll cycle back. So that was a really important teaching because he put it out in the universe, somewhere in the universe, and it cycles around. And you don't know when it comes back around. Which on the one hand, I think to myself, oh, you have to be really careful because who knows it's going to cycle. But I think if my heart is good, then you don't have to be... you don't have to make yourself my heart is good then that what I said came out of a good place it was a place of admiration wasn't jealousy or envy I think the only way either we say nothing at all or we check that our heart's in a good shape and then nothing at all can come bad out of your mouth this is so funny because uh, uh, this morning I noticed that my friend George is here, and all of the examples I'm thinking about that are coming up in my mind are Torah examples. It's probably because George is here. <laughs> but the best story I know about that that's in, uh, in the Hebrew Bible is the story of uh, Bilak and Bilam. The prophet, Bilam, it's Bilam who's the prophet, who goes, is called by the king uh, to uh, come to... Uh, he said, go get me the prophet Bilam because the, uh, the Israelites are too many and they're crossing my territory and I don't want to make a war with them, but get me the prophet Bilam and he'll come up here and make curses on them and they'll all die. So, because a prophet could make very strong curses. 
So it's a whole long story, and it involves a talking donkey, and it's an amazing story. Anyway, but the prophet comes, and on the way he comes to be told by his donkey, or by his the angel who appears to him standing in front of his donkey, who tells him that, you, you, that the king has called you to do curses. And he said, well, I don't want to do that. So well, don't worry about it, because now you know about it, and God will take care of it. And he goes on, and he goes up on a mountaintop, and he goes about his business of getting ready to do a cursing. And he opens his mouth, and nothing comes out. And the king says, well, it must be a bad mountain. Let's go to the next mountain. We'll try. It should be a cartoon, because it's so funny. This mountain is no good. We'll go try the next one. They try the next one. It also doesn't work. After the next one, he goes through all his mechanisms, opens his mouth, and it comes out praises. How goodly are your tents, O oh, Jacob, how good your dwelling places. And I love that. One of my grandson's bar mitzvah was on that particular week, so I know it well. Uh, but I think to myself that it's the same. If your heart is good, nothing bad comes out of your heart. I like that story. It's the, my favorite story, George, of the whole thing. Because if your heart is good, then you can go in a lady's room and say, wow, you have beautiful hair. Because it, it doesn't have any story behind it that's not good. You can say, wow, that's terrific breakdancing. And wow, that's that. And what's more, you don't envy the hair or the breakdancing or the football catch or the anything else because your heart is full with goodwill and happiness. And I like to think that it meant that this person in, in the Torah language he was filled with the Spirit of God. So nothing bad could come out of him. I think that the Brahma Viharas are the same. When equanimity is present, we are filled with the natural spirit of a good heart, which is what we all if we're if if we're born healthy and with good neurology come with. We are strong to be compassionate and kind, unless we're confused and overwhelmed. You say, Wow, that was great or oh dear, how can I help? And in between the Buddha said every moment is either uh, uh, a positive moment, well it was great or uh, a, a difficult moment, oh, what can I do? Or a neutral moment. I don't actually think there are so many neutral moments because I think we, we don't notice when we're, when we're not noticing it's like that. But when you walk from an airplane from the front to the back of an airplane, if you're sitting like in the 10th row and you're walking back to the restrooms in the back and the... the uh, <laughs> I said it last week, I said the planes are getting too high. The planes are the same size, but they got more chairs in them now. So they're more, they're more and more uncomfortable. And if you walk from the front to the back, by the time you get to the back, you see people, they're looking, they're in such uncomfortable positions. And some of them have children lying on them. And they just, nobody looks good in there. <laughs> And you don't know any of them, but you go by and you feel good about them. I mean, maybe I'm not all the time saying, may you be peaceful, may you be happy, may you be free of suffering. But I really do feel companionable with them. I, I really honestly hope they all get their well, because my getting their well depends on them getting their well. We should all get their well. Uh, 
my friend Joe, who isn't here today, who used to be a flight attendant for United for 40 years, said there are no neutral people. When I say to a plane load of people, fasten your seatbelts, I want them all to fasten. I want them all to get there. Okay, not some more than others. So I think that that's probably as much as I can do of that today, but I've been reading more and more analogies where people say, when the mind is flurried, the mind is upset when you can't figure out what to do, what would be good to do always is some practice of goodwill towards everyone. You know, I remember that that's a verse that comes on a lot of Christmas cards. It says, peace on earth, goodwill to men usually. So we have to <laughs> we have to fix it up. Peace on earth, goodwill towards everyone. But um but to really to be able to say something like that as as our mantra. One of my friends who m- met um Maybe I told you this, that um, Sananda, the Cambodian senior prelate, said, was telling about being at a conference with him. She said he didn't say much. He just kept saying, may all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. May all beings said it to himself throughout the day. It's not a bad thing to say throughout the day. Like, what if my watch every 15 minutes would beep and I myself said, may all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. Maybe one of them will happen while I'm standing online and being annoyed at somebody or stuck in too much traffic. What is too much? Maybe it's too much because I got on the freeway at that point. <laughs> that Maybe it would put back the sense of I'm not in charge of the cosmos. This is a big cosmos. And everybody is in it, and it's all unfolding all the time. I was thinking that everything that everybody, everything is infinitely affecting everybody. Infinitely, what's the word? I, I thought about it a long time yesterday. Infinitely, infinitely simultaneously contingent. Everything is all happening. And change is happening. I know, I was thinking a lot about things that I see that are changing. Uh, we are not finished with, uh, with getting over problems of racial bias in the world or in this country. But we are different from 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 50 years ago. Things move maybe not as fast as I'd like them to be. I saw Spike Lee on... Uh, television this morning being interviewed about Black Klansmen, and, which is up for all kinds of awards. I think, you know, things are changing, not as fast as, but how fast could, you know, how did I know how fast they would change? They changed more. I saw an ad where two men are changing a baby diaper and they're having a discussion about the best kind of diaper cream to use. And they're the parents of this baby. And that doesn't say anything. They just saw two guys and it's their baby and they're changing the diaper. It's a new world, really. It's getting there slowly. I uh, also heard yesterday, I was thinking about what happened, what, what's the definition of slow? You may be interested to know that global warming and especially the melting of the ice ca- caps 
has tilted the earth four degrees off its axis. Did you know that? That when you see the earth is always a little tilted when you see it going around and around. So uh, I guess it was in a science news or something that came. It actually has moved because the weight on the poles is different. And I'm certainly looking around, it's going to rain the whole February and it rained the whole January. And it's snowing in Northern California and it's snowing in Oregon and Seattle. And I think, huh. So that's a very slow but inexorable, what does that mean? You know, that you think in terms of cosmic time, I think I wish that diversity had happened earlier. It didn't, but it's, I, I am choosing to take some hope every time I see a commercial like that. I don't know. I actually think that those... Oh, I know, I started to say earlier that watching the soap opera is a way of seeing that people all over the world, wherever they are, they have the same story. My children aren't doing what I wanted them to do. My in-laws aren't doing what I wanted, aren't being who I wanted them to be. My mother or my father is not aging in a way that I hoped that they would. <laughs> and all the stories that, uh, uh, that we have that we then get disappointed because it's not like that. And to be able to say, you know, this is the way it is. And just, uh, what can I do to keep a good heart in it? Aren't you interested in knowing what they do in that department of compassion and caring? <laughs> I, I have, and Kent State, you can look it up too. Maybe you can get a degree in that. That actually sounds good. <laughs> Anyway, I think, I, I, I think I'm back in two weeks or three weeks. No, I don't know. But Donald will be here next week. Oh, I know what I wanted to tell you. Next Tuesday is not only Eric's wedding. It's also, uh, I'm going to be at Book Passage at 1 o'clock next Tuesday. Who's going to come? Uh, my, my friend Danny Shapiro is reading from her book, uh, Inheritance which is already on the New York Times bestseller list. And uh, I'm interviewing her, or we are having a dialogue. Um, ta -ta -ta. In, um, on February 22nd, which is next week on Friday, I am doing a day-long workshop here, upstairs with Heidi, who many of you know because she comes and teaches, Heidi has Heidi is a small business owner. She owns a laundromat that has in uh, um, um, Arcata Humboldt uh, in Arcata, California, which won the award to be the most beautiful laundromat in the United States. So, if you want to look it up, you look up Emerald City Laundromat. It's Heidi's laundromat, and she's also a Dharma teacher. And her particular specialty is having a small business and running it as a Dharma teacher and working with her staff. And so it really is how to be in the world as a person and a, really a Dharma practitioner. And I am co-leading that day with her together upstairs. And there are 30-some people who are going to come, but there's room for more. So if you want to come. 
And in April, the 22nd, no, yes, somewhere in April, the end of April, I think it's the 22nd and the 23rd, um, I'm going to be here for two days, Saturday and Sunday, and we'll practice all kinds of things having to do, it's called Brahma Viharas, and I'll say this because there are the four of equanimity and goodwill and compassion and appreciation, and I'll say heretical things like I think they're all the same thing and we've just parsed them apart and give them different names so we can talk about different things. But it really it all comes down to having a good heart and having an, um, what am I going to call it? Not implacable, that seems like not a, not a right word. What do you want to call a solid good heart or a, um, tell me the word, um, Sustainable? Dedicated. Dedicated, good heart, sustainable. I, I, that really, I think what we all want to do, what I want to do, is really have a good heart. I told you about those EKG machines that you do with your fingers. Did you see them on television? You saw them, George? No? You know, people now have, a lot of people have AFib. Probably a number of people in here do. It's from getting older, people's hearts do that. So now there's an ad that you get a regular, you get a certain kind of a watch, and then you see a person in like a Starbucks, and they say, here, on this little thing, I open it, and I put one finger here, and I put my other finger here, and it instantly reads out uh, an electrocardiogram, and it can tell me whether or not my heart is in sinus rhythm or it's fibrillating, and what's more... It can call my doctor at that point. I mean, it doesn't call, but it it transmits digitally to my doctor that I'm having that problem. And so it says in the ad, or the the person in in the ad says, oh, good, look, I'm in a perfect rhythm, so that's good. But if it's not, my doctor would know. And I think, what if we had, like, a, a, a gizmo like that, that we could put the thing to see if our heart is in a good rhythm, but in the other way, in a good rhythm, <laughs> in addition to not be fibrillating, is it um, um, quivering in empathic response with a person who's suffering? Is it quivering in delight with somebody who just executed a 14-foot pole vault or something? That would be a good heart. Be nice to get a ace. What? I just had an idea. Yeah. Since we all have what they call smartphones, yeah. We should program them for every half hour, and they will then give you the noble truths, or give you anything else that will help you during the day, and they let it come up half, every half hour, an hour, and during the day, it'll just be there for you. That's not only a good idea, Ace, but who has a wee croak? Is that you, George, who has that? One of my friends has wee croak. Do you have that? It's a free app that, like, several times a day, it says, ding, and it says, you know, you're going to die someday. <laughs> or, today might be the day. Or, you know, no, seriously. It's very profound, though. So, it, but how do you get that? We croak. 
Yeah. As in croak. As in croak. Croak, as in croak. Like frogs croak. And it used to be the vernacular for he croaked. But, you know, the... But I, something that, that six times a day said, wake up. Mm-hmm. Ten times a day. Okay. There's a new Apple Watch. Yeah. That, um, it's, uh, does an EKG <coughs> as well. So they're testing it now. What does it do? Apple Watch. It'll t- do an EKG. Oh, the Apple Watch. Yeah. So it's amazing. But we can't stop fighting with each other. We can do all these amazing. We can land a we can land a module on the moon, but we can't make world peace. You know what? May all beings be peaceful and happy, and come to the end of suffering. Thank you, sir. Yeah, that was fun. Please leave the first three rows of chairs. Stack the rest in the back. Thank you. By the way, you like doing a little yoga, a little movement in the beginning. Does that enhance? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.